when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impelled them to that separation. They're saying we need to give a reason for why we declare our independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words and their lasting power, their lasting effect, have been what we are celebrating this week, the opening lines to our Declaration of Independence. Yet many people that were celebrating this week and even this morning are not aware of just how fragile our young infancy of a nation was when those words were written. Just how undecided it was whether or not this democratic experiment of a nation would even work or exist. You see, in the summer and spring of 1776, we were facing some incredible trials as those delegates gathered in Philadelphia to write the words to that declaration. Even leading up to the time of its writing, there were several large colonies that didn't really want to go along with it. They still wanted to give it one more chance, one more letter to the king, one more compromise. Colonies like Pennsylvania and New York, whose delegates said, we'll never sign a Declaration of Independence. The nation at the time was going broke. We had no money. We had no taxation system. We couldn't afford an army. We couldn't afford shoes for our soldiers, ammunition for them to fight. In the southern colonies, it was almost evenly split between Tories or those who supported the crown and patriots, those who supported independence. And in some small towns in North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia, it was akin to a civil war where neighbors were fighting neighbors and communities were killing each other in their communities. As those words were being penned in Philadelphia, George Washington's army was being surrounded in New York City by the largest and most well-equipped army ever assembled at that time. And as those words were written in the next several weeks, Washington's army barely escaped across to New Jersey with the redcoats right on their heels. They fled to Pennsylvania, and as they fled, the army that was basically the army of the United States began to drift away. Many gave up. Many said they'd had enough. Many just seemed to wander away, saying that their conscription, that they were no longer obligated to serve. The army didn't know what it was supposed to do, and as spring turned into summer, the Congress debated whether they should even write such a declaration. The Congress argued and debated whether or not they even needed to try to not make peace with Great Britain, but there was one man who stood determined. One man among all of them that refused to back down day in and day out. And by forging an alliance with two of the largest colonies, Massachusetts and Virginia, that one man refused to compromise. John Adams said, I will not back down. 
Now, I know if you're a student of history, modern revisionist history has sometime given John Adams a bad name. They make him uh, seem a little uh, royal in his rulings. And as a president, the second president, uh, because of his conflict with Jefferson, and we always lift up Jefferson, and those who are Jeffersonian historians, they have diminished John Adams because of their conflicts later as cabinet members for Washington and then as presidents. And if you think politics is ugly now, and I know we hear it every day that this is the worst it's ever gotten, you need to go read some of the things that went on between Jefferson and Adams. I mean, Jefferson in the publication, one of the main publications of the day, called Adams a a toady hermaphrodite. Now, I don't know um, that we would see anything like that be called today, but that's not a nice thing to say about the sitting president. And so sometimes Adams gets a short shift, but I want to suggest to you this morning that I believe that without John Adams, we would have never had a declaration of independence. And without John Adams, we might not even be a nation that we are today. Because for the year leading up to the declaration, when others were looking for compromise, Adams said no, and he wouldn't back down. When others were trying to mock him and make fun of him to get him to relent, Adams stood fast. Against overwhelming odds, as they continued to find negative information coming into the Congress, Adams held his own. And in the midst of all those struggles, in the midst of that spring and summer, Adams wrote a letter home to his wife Abigail, describing what was going on in Congress. He wrote a letter home describing his discouragement and his disappointment. And some of you may have seen the HBO series, John Adams, which is an incredible series. And I watched it again this week. I try to watch it every uh, year around the 4th of July because it's so touching. And uh, if you have not seen it, I would encourage you to watch it. If you'd like to read, then you can read the book that it was based on. It's a short little thing by David McCullough called John Adams. If you're looking for some easy summer reading, then you might want to pick it up. An incredible book. But in this book, McCullough captures this letter that Adams writes to his wife Abigail. And this is what he says. My dear, fear not, for I still stand resolute that some things are worth fighting for. Some things are worth fighting for with all of our being, including our faith and our fidelity, which is truth, and our families and our friendships. And above all, our freedom. Faith, fidelity, family, friends, freedom. Those were the things that were non-negotiable to John Adams. Those were the things that drove him and motivated him. And this week, as we celebrate this Declaration of Independence that John Adams and those other 55 men gave, uh, risked everything... To be able to sign, I want to suggest to you that there are some things today in each of our lives and in our nation that are still worth fighting for. Some things that are still worth standing up for. In a nation today where we have buzzwords that become bumper stickers like compromise and tolerance and coexist, we need to recognize that those who claim the name Jesus Christ are in a battle. And for the same things that John Adams stood for in 1776, they are still under attack. Faith, truth, freedom, family. You see, we live in a day today where it's politically correct to be able to um, mock Christianity without regard 
See, if anyone was to mock any other faith, you can talk about Judaism, you can talk about Islam, but the moment that you talk about Christianity, it's, it's fair game to be mocked, whether it's on TV or on talk shows or in newspapers. We live in a day where someone who takes their religion and their Christianity seriously and having a strong Christian faith is a negative attribute if you want to serve in the judiciary or in the Congress or in the Senate. We live in a day where truth is no longer absolute. Now, truth is whatever you think it is. Truth is now whatever you feel at that moment or at that time. We live in a day where families are constantly under attack and they are dissolving at a record rate, where now it is not the exception to see families break up. It's the norm in America, even in the church. And we live in a day where our personal freedoms shrink with every political decision that comes out of Washington. We live in a day where our personal freedoms that men lived and died for are thrown away with the writing of a pen. Even the freedoms that we experience as a Christian, we are seeing diminished by those who are either legalist or liberal, saying they have a better faith or they are more enlightened than we are. See, the First Amendment that tells us that there is no place for government in religion has now been rewritten to say that there's no place for religion in government. Church, I want to suggest to you on this Independence Week, I want to declare to you that it's time for a revolution, a spiritual revolution. Not a revolution or revival that's based on our independence, but a revolution that is based on the idea that we are dependent on the one who has created us, that we are dependent on the one who sustains us, on the one who saves us. It's time for a revolution that has to start in our hearts and in our families and in our churches and in our communities. A revolution that says those who are dependent on Christ and Christ alone have something worth fighting for. A revolution that's grounded in the truth of the Word of God, not in popular opinion or what sells at the day. A revolution that helps us to understand and proclaim from pulpits and from our workplaces and from our homes and from our schoolhouses that the only hope for our nation, the only hope for our lives, for our families, for our church, is for us to experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I believe it's time for the church to realize some things are worth fighting for. If you have a Bible, I want to tell you a story. You can find it in your order of service. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 11. The words to it, just two short verses, are in your order of service. But if you'd like to follow along, you can. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we find the last will and testament of David. David is dying, and he's looking back over his life. He's writing about the adventures that he had, the things that he did, the times that God stood up for him. And he's discussing some of his greatest warriors and those who fought with him and fought for him and fought beside him. And in verse 8, he describes these men as David's mighty men. And they get their own section in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And I want to look at the third mighty men that's described there in verse 11 and verse 12. Next to him was a man named Shammah, who was the son of Agai the Herod. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took a stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought a great victory. 
And that may seem like just a, some kind of offset story, something that it's easy for us to go by. And probably if you've been reading your Bible through for a year and you came to that, you would just brush by the story of Shema. But I want you to see what happened. Like many times in the nation of Israel, the Philistines, who were their greatest enemy, they had border areas, which is one of the places where Shema lived. And what happened in those border areas, they would plant their crops. And every time they would go and work hard and, and plant their seeds, and they would put water in it, and they would sow the ground, and they would work real hard. And right about the time for harvest, year after year after year, the Philistines would ride over the hill and come and sack this lentil field. It was a bean field. It was a pea patch. And every year the Israelites, when they would see the Philistines coming, they would run and they would go hide and they would watch as the Philistines came and destroyed all that they'd worked for. And David tells us here that one time, one man said, enough is enough. And as the Philistines came over the hill and everybody else took off running, Shema stood and said, I've left my pea patch last time. I'm standing. Because some things are worth fighting for. And the Bible says he continued to strike down Philistine after Philistine after Philistine. And won a great victory. And it earned him part of a roll call of being called David's mighty men. Now church, I believe there are times in our lives and times in areas of our lives where sometimes we just need to remain quiet. Sometimes the best thing for us to do is to stay silent. Most of the time that's on Facebook. Okay? Let me just give you this for free. Just because you have an opinion doesn't mean it needs to be heard on Facebook. Okay? Sometimes we do more damage than we do good. There are times in our life where we need to stay quiet. Sometimes it's just easier to move over. Sometimes it's easier to adjust course or simply walk away. However, I am a firm believer that there are times in our life like John Adams and like Shema in his story where we must choose to stand. Where we can no longer walk away. We can't back down. We can't budge. There are times where we must say, this is the hill in which I'm going to die on. I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm not crossing it. And I'm going to stand on my principles and I'm going to stand on my faith. And I'm not backing down this time. Now I'd love to tell you when that time is, but only you will know it because it's different for everybody. It may be on your sports team. It may be in your workplace. It may be at a family gathering. It may be with neighborhood friends. It may be at a sporting event. It may be just in casual conversation with someone you've been friends with for years. I can't tell you, but I will tell you that the Spirit will lead you when it's time to stand. And you'll know it. But I think John Adams' list is a good place to start. A good place for us to stop compromising when it comes to truth and faith and family and freedom. And so with that in mind, with the idea of some things worth fighting for, I just want to suggest to you a couple of thoughts from this story. Just a reminder about things that are worth fighting for. And the first one is probably the one most of us know, but probably little of us pay any attention to. And that is the idea and the fact that you and I are in a battle. If there's anything that Paul's letters in the New Testament teach us, it is that as Christ followers, the moment that you put on the name Christian, the moment you stepped across the line and said, count me as part of the fellowship of the redeemed, you put a target on your back to be attacked and battle started. 
You're in a battle, but yet so many people don't realize it, and so many people ignore it, and so many people just think it's, it's just fun scripture to talk about. There is an enemy out there that is wanting to attack you simply because you claim the name Christ. Peter warns in 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Be alert, always looking out for your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I know in our enlightened PC age, we don't like to talk about the devil. We don't hear much talked about in church anymore, do we? Sometimes we just pretend that he's just this imaginary figure. We, we matter of fact, have made him into this little guy with red uh, outfit and horns and a pitchfork. Somehow we've characterized him, and that makes it easier for us to forget about him and laugh about him. Let me tell you something, he's nothing to laugh at. And while you ignore him and while you choose not to believe him, I promise you he will attack your family, he will undermine your spiritual authority, and he will rob you and steal you of your joy. You ignore him at your peril. Paul says, be alert, be ready. Why? Because the Philistines are coming over the hill, and there's going to be a time where you're going to be challenged. Are you going to stand or are you going to run? You and I, Christians, are in a battle. We are in a fight. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. When is the battle taking place? Right now. The battle took place when you got up this morning and and you thought, I need to sleep in. and Maybe I need a a little extra hour of sleep. Or or, or you couldn't decide whether you wanted to go to church last night. Or or when you got in here and we sang a song that you didn't like and so you shut it off. Right now as I'm preaching and and you're coming in your mind saying, well, what are we having for lunch and where are we going to go and is the preacher going to get finished in time and all of those other things. Do you understand that is a battle? People say the devil's attacking the church. No, the devil's not attacking the church. The devil's joining the church. Because the devil can do a lot more damage by planting tares than attacking wheat. He's coming in amongst us and he's spreading disunity and he's causing problems. We are in a battle for our souls. We are in a battle for our families. We are in a battle for our communities and our churches. And all you have to do is turn on the news and you'll see it. All you have to do is open your eyes. Unfortunately, this is a battle you can't opt out of. I know some Christians say, well, I don't want to fight. Not your choice. You can choose to walk away, but he won't quit until he sees you defeated and destroyed and diminished and your Christian joy robbed and your purpose disappearing. It's not a fight you can get out of. It's not something that you can walk away. Now, I'm not telling you, I know some people run with this spiritual warfare stuff and go crazy with it. I, I know people who see demons around every corner, and they, that's all they are consumed with. I, I've got friends that everything that happens bad in their house had to be a demon that attacked them. They had a flat tire. That demon flat tire. Their lamp fell down in the house. A demon knocked the lamp down. No, your dog knocked the lamp down. If you want to call him a demon, that's okay. (laughs) I'm not telling you to go around and be on a devil hunt. We don't have to go search for him. He will find us. 
What I'm telling you is you need to open your eyes and be ready and understand that He wants to attack your family. He wants to attack your kids. He wants to attack you. Did you see who the enemy was? He said, Ephesians, our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's with principalities and ideas of this dark world. It's the philosophies of the world. Yet most of us spend all of our time fighting the wrong enemy. We fight people. Get mad at people. Get angry at people. Our fight's not with other people. Bible tells us we're to love them. Our fight is with the philosophies that are destroying this world and who God's called us to be. We're in a spitter battle, and I can assure you that the enemy will come, and we don't get to choose when he comes. We don't get to pick. I wish we did. I wish there was a way that we could say, God, you know, right now I need a timeout. God, I, I'm not ready. I can't handle that. I've had a tough week or, or things are going real good right now, God. can you? But we don't get to choose. The enemy doesn't. He's the master of timing. When did he come in our story? He came at harvest time. Why? Because that was a time of celebration to the Jewish people. That was when everybody from all the surrounding communities came together and they got together and they sang and they danced and they harvested the food and they reaped what they had been sowing. And the enemy knew that was the time they were most vulnerable. Why? Because they were celebrating. And the enemy does the same thing to you and I. Have you ever noticed that after some of your greatest victories came some of the strongest attacks in your life? That's why I always tell the church, when things are going great, Things are going good. You better put on your boots and get ready because he's coming. When it seems like everything is at its best, when it seems like there are no problems, that's when the enemy sneaks in and he doesn't come over the hill like the Philistines in an attack. He comes from behind where you least expect it. And he doesn't look like what you expect him to look like. He looks like your neighbor or your friend or that website. And he creeps in. And before you know it, you realize you're in a battle for your soul. Or you're in a battle for your kid's life. Or you're in a battle for your marriage. And you weren't ready. See, what I want you to understand is as God is calling us to stand up and be ready to fight for things, the moment you say, I want to make a stand and fight, is the moment the enemy will come. And I've always found that he always shows up at the worst possible time. And you know the thing about the enemy? When he shows up, he piles on. He usually just doesn't do a drive-by. He doesn't. He just didn't come by and, and just say, I'm just going to test you here. What happens is he lays siege to your soul. And one thing happens. You get a bad doctor's report. And you get down because you're not ready for the attack. Health problems. And all of a sudden, something else happens at work. And then something else happens to one of your kids. And all of a sudden, it just starts piling on and piling on and piling on. And instead of turning to God and realizing I'm in a fight and I'm in a battle and it's time that I put on the armor of God and I get on my knees and remind you a couple of weeks ago I told you that you you have a choice. You can either fight on your feet or on your knees, but you can't do both. And what I found is when you fight on your knees, you usually win. See, most of us rather fight on our feet with our tongues and doing it ourselves and anger and, and fighting back. No. It's in that moment when the enemy comes that we need to get on our knees. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Be on your guard, stand firm, be people of courage and be strong. See, I want you to know, church, we're in a battle and the enemy is coming. He is already here. The question for you and I this morning is, what will we do about it? 
What will you do about it? Now I know we're at church on Sunday, and so every one of us say, Pastor, I'm going to stand. Amen? We just sang about it. I'm going to stand. I'm strong, Pastor. It's easy to stand when things are good. It's easy to even stand here in church when you've got other Christians got your back. But let's be honest. I wonder how many of us this week remained silent when we should have said something. How many of us this week allowed anger to overflow and control our emotion? How many of us this week, when the enemy attacked, we'd lashed out instead of getting down on our knees and praying? See, we can say we'll stand, but I wonder how many of us would instead... We always put ourselves in the Bible and think, I'm Shema, right? I'm standing there, I got my shirt on, I left my pee patch for the last time. Come on, let's fight, right? When most of us in reality, we're like the rest of the Israelites, we're hiding behind the rocks, cheering him on, hoping he can hold them off. Don't feel bad about it. Peter set a record for fleeing. He ran right in Jesus' face. He couldn't stand. You see, the question for us this morning is, when that attack comes at work, when that attack comes at at home, when that attack comes in your ball fields or in your emotional time at home and no, no one else is around, what are you going to do? Will you run or will you stand? Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore put on the whole armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, when the attacks show up, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. You see, Shema didn't decide, I'm going to stand when he saw the Philistines coming over the hill. I believe the year before, when he was hiding behind the rocks, when he lost, and they let, they let them steal everything they'd worked so hard for, he said, never again, never again. And some of you this morning, you've been beat down and beat up. Some of you have compromised. Some of you, have, you know in your own life, you, you've fought battles and you've lost and you've given up. Some of you, maybe at one time, you stood for your family. You stood in the gap and said, I'm going to do everything I can for my kids and my grandkids and help them understand who Jesus Christ is. Some of you, maybe in the church, you were a standard bearer. And you said, I'm going to be there and be somebody that can be counted on. But over time, you've just been beat down and you've gotten tired and you just wandered away. And the attacks have keep coming and you aren't doing anything. Paul says, you've got to determine in your heart, I'm going to stand. So I believe Shema was ready. And the moment they heard that Philistine battle cry and everyone started running, he said, this is the time. I'm not doing it again. You see, church, please hear me. There are going to be battles this week. There are going to be battles before you leave this place. I know in my own life. I mean, God would speak to me in church, especially when my kids were little. I mean, let's be honest. Kids... Sin nature is strong in small children. Amen? Man, you go to church and you sing and you have a good time and God speaks to you and you worship and you're saying, God, this week is going to be different and I'm going to, I'm going to love and I'm going to forgive and I'm going to give grace and I'm going to give mercy and, and you're getting out and walking out of the church and you pick the kids up in the nursery and you're trying to get them in the car and one's pulling the other's hair and you're, you know, you're smiling because church people are looking and so you're bringing them around, right? And you're, you're opening the door and you get them in the car seat and you're still smiling and you close the door and the moment you're in there, you turn around and just your whole demeanor changes, right? Just wait till we get home. <laughs> it's a battle. And I'm not telling you it's easy. It's not. 
If it was easy, then marriages wouldn't be falling apart. Kids wouldn't turn into prodigals. If it was easy, then we would see revival breaking out across our city. Churches would be full of people that really trust and believe in the Word of God as their source of authority. It's not, but it calls for some of us that are willing to say, I'm not backing down again. This time I'm standing. Let me ask you this, church. Is your marriage worth fighting for? Are your kids worth fighting for? Are your grandkids worth fighting for? What about the truth? Is it worth fighting for? Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers and preachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We're there. That could be written in 2018. What about our spiritual freedom? Is it worth fighting for? What about religious liberty? Baptists died for it. Is it worth fighting for? Think about your life. Are you fighting the good fight? Are you standing strong? Paul said, after you've done everything, after you've prayed, after you've loved, after you've reached out, after you've given all you can, then just stand. Let me close with something that maybe encourages you. Do you see what happened at the end of verse 12? Shema stood there and fought with everything he had. And then it said, the Lord brought down a great victory. Shema didn't win. God won. Shema couldn't have defeated the Philistines by himself. God won. You see what this story wants us to remind is God's not looking for you to beat down the gates of hell. God's not looking for you to win your school for Christ. God's not looking for you to be the standard bearer of truth in your neighborhood. God's not looking for you to clear up everybody's misconceptions of Christianity on Facebook. All God's looking for you is to be obedient and to say, I'll stand. All God's looking for you is to say, yes, because in our obedience, God said, I'll bring the victory. See, some of you this morning, you've been fighting and fighting and fighting. You think, there's no way this is going to ever end. I'm not going to win. It's not for you to determine win or lose. It's for you to say, I'll stand. And please hear me. You may never see the results of your stand. You may not. No one may ever come up and say, oh, thank you. Your kids may not rise up and call you, but thank you for your witness and your stand and and what I saw in your life because it meant so much to me. You may never hear that. But it'll make a difference in their life and in their kids' lives. It'll make a difference in the church. It'll make a difference in your community. See, God's just looking for some people like Shema that are willing to say, I'm not backing down anymore. I'm obedient. All God needed was one person willing to stand, and he brought about a victory. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is never in vain. What he says is when you stand, when you stop backing down, it always pays dividends. Standing for God is never in vain. Don't move. Don't give up. Don't back down. 
pray more, love deeper, pursue God with everything you had. And if you can't think of anything else to do, stand is what Paul said. See, my question here this morning is, will you be like Shema, John Adams, and say, I've left my pea patch for the last time. I've left that area of compromise for the last time. I've walked away for the last time. I've given in for the last time. Will you say, I'm going to stand for truth and for faith, and I'm going to stand for my family, and I'm going to stand for freedom? Because church, we gather here this morning to worship in freedom and peace. Because one bullheaded country lawyer from outside of Massachusetts was willing to say, I'm not backing down. And he convinced 55 other men to do the same thing. We need a revolution. A revolution of utter dependence in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our community. You're tired of being beat up. Tired of giving up. Tired of feeling defeated. God's calling you to stand. I want to close by reading this declaration of revolution. Some of you may have seen it. It's been around for a while, but I want you to listen to the words. For I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. For I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present is in His hands. And my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. For I no longer need preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. For I now live by faith. I lean in His presence. I walk by His patience. I live by prayer and labor by love. My face is set. My walk is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. And I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or ponder at the pool of popularity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I plan to go as hard as I can until He comes. Give until I drop. Share until all know and work until He stops me. Because when He comes for His own, I believe He'll have no problem recognizing me. For I will be the one standing. Let's pray.